Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Monday, February 5th, day 122 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borchel Dan here with our diplomatic correspondent, Laser Behrman. Hi, Laser. Good morning. The U.S. has sent its diplomatic A-team to the region again, and we'll hear what they're up to. Laser, drawing on his expertise in military operations, took a look at how a pause in fighting in Gaza may affect the outcome of the war. We'll hear more. And we'll also hear about how a so-called Biden doctrine may produce a demilitarized Palestinian state. All this and much more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. First, some headlines. Rocket sirens have sounded in communities at both the northern border and along the Gaza Strip this morning. The Givari Brigade raided the main headquarters of Hamas's Khan Yunus Brigade, used by the terror group for training ahead of its brutal October 7th onslaught. U.S. President Joe Biden is urging senators to vote for the bipartisan national security deal unveiled by the Senate. The 118 billion package pairs border enforcement policy with wartime aid for Ukraine, Israel, and other U.S. allies. In a speech at the Grammy Awards in Los Angeles, Recording Academy CEO Harvey Mason Jr. mentioned the 365 Israelis gunned down at the Novo Music Festival on October 7th, and he called for peace and unity. Laser, U.S. Special Envoy Amos Hochstein was in Israel over the weekend for talks with Israeli officials on a developing framework to push Lebanese terror group Hezbollah from Israel's northern borders, amid, of course, roiling tensions and daily exchanges of fire. And U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is also meant to arrive. So do you think that there's a real possibility of a deal being reached here? So I want to separate two uh, theaters, right? You have the Southern Theater the war going on in Gaza, if we still want to call it a war, and we can talk about that in a little bit, and uh, the Northern Theater, which has not become a war. That's the fighting with Hezbollah from Lebanon. If there was nothing going on in Gaza, Israel would have turned this into a war a long, long time ago. It's been over 2,000 rocket strikes, um, and we've hit back hard. Um, we've killed, I think it's up to 182 Hezbollah fighters. So there's real fighting. But both sides have an interest to not see this develop into a broader war. And not only Israel, also the United States is very interested in preventing that. There's been ongoing attempts by the U.S., by the French, by some others, 
to try to find a diplomatic way out of a war, at least right now. In my opinion, a war is inevitable. The lessons of October 7th point at the need for Israel to not wait for dangerous armed groups to strike before we take care of the problem. But obviously Israel, not obviously, but Israel would be well served not to do that right now. We're already overstretched just in the Gaza Strip, and we've seen the release of of reservists. And, and just from the fighting there, we've seen how much that taxes the system. So when this happens, it'll be a couple of years down the road, I, I think, if we can choose the timing. But in the meantime, we'd like to get Hezbollah fighters off the border as far back as possible. Israel wants it beyond the Latani, but Hezbollah obviously doesn't want to agree to that. For the first time in a long time, there are some signs of optimism kind of being le- leaked out to the news. Um, a, a proposal that was in Hebrew media was a three-stage solution for the north. First, an agreement that would have Hezbollah withdraw um, from eight to 10 kilometers from the border. Then you would see more UN and Lebanese army LFA forces come in. And finally, you would see Israeli residents. There's about 80,000 who have evacuated and southern Lebanese residents return to their homes. Um, again, let's not forget, just because that's being leaked out doesn't mean the two sides are really that close. On such a sensitive um, and explosive border, any small miscalculation could lead to, to much worse and even war. Um, so let's let's not get way ahead of ourselves, but there is enough, at least, optimism to work with for Hochstein to be here. Let's also not forget that the French foreign minister is in Israel today, and that's also something with the French historic connections to Lebanon that they're very interested in. And I also want to add that also as part of this deal, if it indeed happens, the blue line ceasefire line between Israel and Lebanon could turn into a permanent border if some of the disagreements uh, are smoothed out there as well. So that's where things stand. Again, let's not get ahead of ourselves, but there is international muscle being put into this. Now, while you were speaking, you mentioned that obviously Israel is overstretched in the Gaza Strip. So I'd like to drill down on that. Why do you say that? So after, what are we, 122 days after the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, uh, the war is basically not a war anymore. We're not using the full fight of the IDF, not even close to, um, to topple Hamas in any dramatic operation. Um, at the beginning, you had multiple divisions operating at the same time, creating some serious problems for Hamas, but even that was limited geographically. At this point, you only have a couple of divisions still operating. Um, in the north, you even can see that Hamas is trying to reassert some sort of civil presence in some places as well. A big reason for that is not because we've achieved what we want to achieve or that we are exactly where we want to be. It's that you cannot hold on to the reserves for this long. It's as simple as that. There's stresses on the economy and that they're not working at the time. And almost all uh, reservists are people who work and pay taxes. You have to pay for them. And let's be honest, there's a lot of pressure from home. Um, you know, you get into mid twenties, you know, to mid forties, and these are people who are married and and have kids. And there's, and I see it from my friends as well. That that it's also hard on on families at home, and they are not able to hold out as long as as maybe some would have liked. So the army understands that it is overstretched, and it can't uh, prosecute full blown wars, at least in the current state, for this long. I think the army needs to get bigger. We need to think about how to keep. Uh, the reserve force as a force that can be activated for much longer, but 
you know, the proof is, is is in the way this war is being fought that we move to whatever you call, want to call it, the stage three or whatever, whatever the, the word is. It's not really because of operational reality. In some places it is, but it's basically because we can't hold on to the reserve force for that long. Laser, you yourself are a marathon runner, and you know that it's different kinds of training, it's different kinds of running when you're running a sprint versus a marathon. And could it not just be that the IDF is now treating this war as a marathon and not a sprint? Yeah, but if if it's true, I did run seven marathons. Thank you for bringing that up. If we're talking about it in this long, stretched out things, that means Hamas is not going to be uh, defeated on the battlefield. Okay, It's going to keep being able to... Uh, rearm, reassess, reform. We're not going to kill every single fighter. And it's going to start looking more and more like the West Bank in that there is an IDF presence when it, in, around Palestinian areas. When there is intelligence about an impending threat or, you know, or, or, or that we find some sort of tunnel or, or warehouse that an operation is is conducted it could be up to a brigade size but that's basically what we will see then and we see in the west bank it's not like hamas is gone hamas is there in the west bank if the idf pulled out they would take over tomorrow but that is the uh the reality i think that we're moving toward question is okay so that means we're not going to replace hamas in the gaza strip well the only way to do it then if we're not going to defeat them on the battlefield and we're taking this kind of slow longer approach is while they're underground to bring someone else in and that's something that the government has not wanted to talk about for obvious political reasons, but that really has to be the focus now because we do have them underground. There is some space to create a different solution, but we can't. that, that can't happen uh, when Hamas starts coming up from underground and we pull back a little bit. I want to ask you another operational question. Of course, new soldiers are being drafted all the time. I have two more children who will go in in April. And could it not be that the, the reserves are being replaced by these regular soldiers? It's a good question. Well, every time you have a new uh, group of soldiers coming up through advanced basic training, advanced training, and getting to the veteran um, fighting units, that other people are being released. So there's this balance that goes on that... One, it's called the Mahzor, one round of uh, several thousand fighters leaves and several thousand more come in. So that is not going to be the uh, solution there. Uh, solutions are to create new units, to expand. I think we ne certainly need more combat engineers. Um, all this talk and, and what they've done in recent years about shortening service was obviously a bad idea. It needs to go back up to three years. Um, so that is 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 what... Um, that's that's why the, the, you know when they're drafting more soldiers, it's not going to make up a big difference in numbers. There's a little caveat there that they're they're moving up the the draft of some people who are in the pre-military academies and some of the Hezder yeshiva. So that will will add a little bit more. But I think that just it points at the need for manpower. There's also the fact that um, the officers' training school, Badechad, and the infantry schools were fighting at the beginning, but they need to go back and create the next generation of commanders. So that's why they're also pulled out. So there's only so so long we can fight a proper war in the IDF, and I think that needs some thinking about how we can do this for longer because what we've done so far has not, um, none of our goals have been reached yet, and we're already really drawing down forces. Okay, we'll go to a short break, and then we'll speak more about these goals. And we're back. So Israel's stated goals for the war against Hamas in Gaza have been to topple the terror regime 
and to bring back the hostages. And we've long wondered whether these goals are complementary, whether they can be achieved at the same time, or whether one must necessarily be at the expense of the other. And now that there is renewed talk of a hostage release deal with a long pause, could this be the tipping point for what you're saying, that the war will actually just end? So the first goal that Netanyahu and his government stated was just one. It was the toppling of Hamas, its military and civil administrative powers. About a week later, the the goal of bringing back all the hostages was quietly added. Now we have this third one, which isn't that groundbreaking. It's that Hamas, that Gaza will never serve again as a platform from which to threaten Israel. But there's really the two main ones, toppling Hamas, bringing back the hostages. If we wanted to bring back the hostages, if that was our main goal, as a lot of the families have demanded, then we could do that. We could have done the first day of the war. I mean, Hamas kidnapped people in order to make a deal. And that deal would be the war is over. We pull out the forces. There's a long-term ceasefire. And we release most, if not all, of the uh, Palestinian terrorists and other prisoners uh, that, that we're holding in prison. Obviously, that is that stands at direct odds with our other goal of toppling Hamas. Now, Netanyahu and the military has said that the two goals go hand in hand. It is only military pressure that will lead to a deal being made. That was true at the beginning. The initial deal, that which got out more than 100 people, was because of military pressure. But a further deal, there's no way that Hamas is going to give up its a guarantee that it survives, which is the hostages, without some sort of... Um, some guarantee that the war is over, that Israel is going to pull out. Um, And if Israel is serious about this other goal, and by all appearances and by all statements it is, then it cannot agree to an end of the war. So there is that that gulf that has to be bridged. If it's going to be bridged, then it's going to at least be a long pause in the war. And the question is, how can Israel, what does that do to the war effort? If it's a two-month pause, let's think about what happens on the ground. Civilians go back to their homes or go back to whatever is left of it. If civilians go back, Hamas goes back. And if indeed the fighting starts again, uh, we have to reconquer places. Hamas is able to have fighters who are injured be uh, treated and sent back into action. They can reform battalions that have been smashed apart. They can appoint new commanders. They can maybe, they can probably create some new weapons, nothing too crazy, but maybe smuggle something in. It depends how serious the Egyptians are being right now. But in general, they can take what they have and reconstitute, and uh, and that will make our efforts, which again, are not that intensive right now, even harder. And then there's the international que- question, the strategic theater, which I think is even more problematic. If we wait two months, we're already into April uh, the Biden administration and Joe Biden himself is facing a very problematic election season. If you look at the polls, almost all of them show Trump up by three, four, five or more points. Um, this his his firm pro-Israel stance has not helped him amongst progressives and Arab Americans, and he needs everyone uh, to come out to vote for him. I think a lot of these these um, these states that are going to be fought over are going to be decided by you know a few tens of thousands of votes. So. He's really trailing in all of them, and he wants this to be behind him. I think the Biden would have liked this to be over by the end of 2023. And if we're pushing this war into April, I think that's not something that the Americans will like. The international community wants to see uh, the pictures of suffering in Gaza behind us. So to start up a war and to assume that in those two months, there's not going to be intensive efforts to to find a permanent uh end to the fighting, I think, is naive. So there is no question that at this stage, if they don't stand 
um, if they're not mutually exclusive, they're at least quite difficult. At least, the, at least you could say that the uh, freeing of of hostages, a hostage deal, will will dangerously undermine the goal of toppling Hamas. Have you heard any kind of number crunching uh, from the part of the IDF in terms of how long it would set back the IDF in terms of time? No, I haven't, because a lot of that is, I don't think they even know how long it's going to take right now. We see all sorts of different figures. They, they're just setting expectations. They say, at least for the for the coming year, we're going to be operating in the Gaza Strip. And then there's the question of what Hamas does during that time and, and how much of a fight we're able to do to, to put up afterward. There's also the question of Rafiah that Israel says we're definitely going there. That's that last Palestinian city, the third largest in the Gaza Strip on the uh, Gaza-Egypt border. That's where most civilians are. And of course, that's where the tunnels are. That's where the Philadelphia Road, where Israel used to control, uh, cuts across them. You know, we're not there yet. And Egypt has been pretty adamant that it doesn't want to see Israel get down there. It could be because they're afraid that that hundreds of thousands of Palestinians will be pushed into the Sinai. But there's no guarantee we're going to do that either. So that's also another factor that we have to take into account. In my opinion, that should have been done, should have been done in parallel with Gaza City in the first after the war. Uh, but I think that's part of the mismanagement at the operational level of this thing. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about a uh, possible day after. And according to New York Times's Thomas Friedman, President Joe Biden's administration is homing in on a new doctrine involving an unprecedented push to immediately advance the creation of a demilitarized but viable Palestinian state. We've historically seen something somewhat similar with a Japan post-World War II, but the conditions are obviously very different. And do you think that Hamas would, for example, need more of a big stick to accompany this carrot of a state? I mean, obviously, Japan suffered terribly before it agreed to surrender. I don't think Hamas would want to be part of this at all. The only way that Hamas would want to be part of this is if it gets to survive and gets to have some seat in this new potential Palestinian uh, state, stately, whatever it is. The question is what really what Israel would accept here. Um, I think you know you even had President Herzog at Davos, who's certainly no crazy right winger, saying that no Israeli in his right mind is thinking about a Palestinian state right now. And I think uh, the world needs to understand that, including the U.S. needs to understand it's not a BB thing that that there's no pal- there's no one's talking about a Palestinian state. It's just not going to happen right now. But we are also hearing that uh, the Saudis are a little bit more flexible because they want to see this this defense agreement with the United States closed up or sealed b- before the elections in the U.S. When it's not as sure it'll happen, so they want this to happen. And they, they're they, according to reports, they say that uh, if Israel commits kind of verbally to a pathway or, or toward, toward the vision of, of a two-state solution, that's enough for them. It doesn't have to be an irreversible binding path toward one. In my opinion, that's not something that's crazy for Netanyahu to do. I don't think it'll really damage him politically. I mean, that's why he's he's taking on the Biden administration and saying so publicly, you know, I'll never, I won't allow this. I know how to say no to the, to the U.S., um, if he just says, yeah, after the war, we can talk about all sorts of interesting ideas. I think that's that's acceptable, especially if we know it's not going to happen. And to get a, a normalization deal with Saudi Arabia, that seems like a pretty good deal. I think most agree- Israelis would agree to that, you know, some sort of non-committal political process in exchange for Saudis and then probably some other countries as well, I think is, is pretty is a pretty good deal for Israel. 
This is a pretty naive question, but why does Israel get such a big vote on whether there will or will not be a Palestinian state? Because uh, Palest- we control the territory um, that Palestinians would like to have for a state. No one can force us to do anything that we don't want to do, even though some people in the world think we can. That Palestinian state, if it's not demilitarized, and even if it is probably, will pose could pose a threat to Israel. So anything that happens, it needs to be done with the full consent uh, and support of Israel. There are people who want a state to be imposed from the outside, and there are plenty of countries that have voted to recognize a Palestinian state. It means nothing. Israel controls what happens in the West Bank. Palestinian Authority has no official presence in Jerusalem either, so if they want that, then Israel has to consent to it. There's no way this is going to work in any way, and it's just a fantasy if anyone thinks otherwise, without Israel's consent. So if this is going to be a peaceful future, it's going to be with two states that recognize each other, that trade with each other, in my opinion, that don't have a a border that you have to, you know, you can just drive back and forth across them. That's the only way to make this happen. No one's going to force Israel to do anything that it doesn't want to do, especially something as big as creating a Palestinian state um, right in its heartland, right near Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And so I think my first question still stands. Do you think that if not Hamas, that the Palestinian people themselves would agree to such a demilitarized state? Or is the population just so so filled with, I don't know, hatred against Israel that they want to continue the terror activity? It's a good question. I don't, I mean, I don't do polling of the Palestinians. Uh, I'm not, I think there's a significant amount, I don't know what percentage, that doesn't really want, that, that their goal is not to build a state per se, it's still the replacement of Israel, right? And as long as that doesn't happen, you know, they're, they're not interested. Then there's the more pragmatic, and, and again, I'm not doing any percentages here, but there is a pragmatic uh, portion that would ap- ac- actually accept all the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and and much of uh, East Jerusalem. I don't know how much that is, but uh, I think the, the being militarized or not, if you're willing to accept that latter state, then I think that the being militarized is not the issue, because if that military can't defend itself from Israel, quote-unquote. And if, if you're done trying to destroy Israel, you really don't need any real um, you know, military. You need some police forces that can deal with the Hamas and jihad presence and whatever terrorist groups will still be there, but nothing beyond that. Lazer, thank you so much for your insights today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another episode tomorrow. This installment was produced by The Pod Waves. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. <laughs>